Well, good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles, keep them open. Uh, today's passage, uh, it can be quite complicated. Oh, there we go. Do your best. It's like the opposite of the theme of Ephesians. You're saved by grace. So today, uh, we are going to be looking... Well, please speak to us this morning, wherever we are at, uh, whatever weeks we've had in the past and whatever lies ahead of us, uh, any worries and anxieties and excitements about the future... Lord, I pray that we would put them all aside as we meditate on your word this morning. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, growing up, uh, the dinner experience at my uh, home was an interesting one. Uh, My mum, she would cook some fantastic meals. Uh, She would slave behind the stovetop all afternoon on many occasions to create a meal that was so perfect. It was so often full of goodness, full of nutrition, Uh, and most importantly, full of flavour. But for us kids, we would often turn our noses up at these meals. No, for us, the best meals that my mum would make us, uh, which I think was often easier, and yet I think you'd all agree as we grow up, as we mature, as I got older in particular, uh, there were more tastes and textures in my food that I learned to appreciate. And I very quickly realised how simple and how gross fish fingers really were and how good mum's cooking actually was. That as I matured, I also realised how undernourishing fish fingers were. In fact, nowadays, eating fish fingers, really, if you put it in front of me, I think it would amount to full and bland to develop a taste that knows the surpassing greatness of his love for us in Christ. And in particular, so that our faith doesn't buckle under the pressures and discouragements of life. And Paul himself, as he's writing this, he's a living example of this. Uh, He's a man who was in prison for the sake of the gospel. So if you look at verse 1 and verse 13, twice there, he mentions his imprisonment and his suffering. But he's showing no sign in today's passage of this being a discouragement for him at all, or even a mild reason for him to waver in the faith. This is Christian maturity. And while today we're, gonna, we're not going to be imprisoned for the gospel yet, I can foresee it coming in Australia, funnily enough, but we can talk about that another time. Uh, there are other things that do tempt us to pull us away from the gospel. Things where our colleagues perhaps see us as stupid, as wasting our brains on this stuff, as foolish for believing in a dead Messiah... They see us as, as people that are idiots in today's society. Why, why do we separate our Sundays and do this every single week when we could be doing the local sports or taking up a hobby or doing whatever else? And so we're often tempted uh, perhaps to hide uh, the hope that we have in Jesus, tempted maybe to water it down just a little bit. So you know, don't talk about sin, don't talk about judgment. In some denominations, this is exactly what you find. It's no mention of God's wrath or his anger against sin. And we're doing this because we, we want to try and fit in with the world. We want to try and be nice. And so we keep our mouths shut when it comes to, uh, quote-unquote, your religion. We don't mention anything. But in Ephesians 3, we're called to be matured in Christ, to be strengthened in the love of God, not to do these things. To see the reality of Christ's love in all of its width, length, height, and depth, and the manifold wisdom of God revealed to us as God saves us. We were once dead in our transgressions and sins, if you remember. 
few weeks back. We were outside the household of God. We were destined for hell, but now completely by his grace, we have been welcomed in with open arms as a child of God. And so this reality, in other words, Paul prays that this reality would be at the forefront of our minds, that our identity in Jesus would be what secures us, that we would see ourselves as secured in the heavenly realms. And he wants us to see this to the extent that the worries and the temptations of the world, the worries that try to pull us and strip us away from being bold for Christ, living for him, having a life that's consistent at church and outside of church, that all the temptations to to throw that stuff off would look like measly fish fingers by comparison to this rich feast that God has for us. He wants us to see the temptations of the world as no more tempting than a bunch of crumbed fish scraps served on a plastic plate. The worries and temptations of the world would really bounce off us and they would pale in comparison to the infinite riches of knowing Christ Jesus. And so this forms the basis of Paul's prayer uh, in 14 to 19 today. So this is kind of the structure that we have of today's passage. It's kind of fascinating because you have the two for this reasons. One in verse 1, and then you have another one down there in verse 14. And in some of your Bibles, you'll notice a little hyphen or a little dash after the first verse. And that's the editor saying, oh, Paul's had a, a, a kind of brain bubble here. He's got another thought that he wants to speak about. And so verses 2 to 13, he goes on this tangent, but then he resumes his verse 1 statement back in verse 14. So verse 14 onwards really is where the meat of today's passage is. Uh, but we will be looking at the whole thing, but we're going to start here at Paul's prayer in verse 14 onwards. And this brings us, if you're following on your outlines, to point one, Paul prays for his reader's maturity. So if we cast our minds briefly back to chapter two, we saw that as Gentiles, we were dead in our transgressions and sins, that we were by nature children of wrath, but that God reconciled us all, both to one another, but also to himself. If you remember that horizontal and vertical reconciliation. And so you're in. Right? You're part of the salvation club now where previously you were out. But not only this, you're now members of God's household, your family. Right? Remember, you've got access to the fridge. You can put your feet up on the couch. But the problem is that being members of God's family, the one true living God, being someone who follows Christ, it so often comes with the reality of fierce opposition and other temptations to throw it all off. And so I think this is why Paul makes a pretty explicit mention of his imprisonment in verse 1 and his sufferings in verse 13, because he's saying, yes, the world will try and pull you away from Christ. I mean, look at me. It's a fact. But don't be discouraged by any of this. If anything, this is a sign that you're on the right track. And withstanding this kind of pressure is a sign that you are maturing in Christ. In fact, Paul subtly gives his own proof of this in verse 1 when he mentions his imprisonment. Uh, He calls himself, interestingly, not a prisoner of Rome or a prisoner of the Jews or a prisoner of the Ephesians or whoever else you want to mention there. Rather, he calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's Jesus' prisoner. And by saying this, he's kind of sticking it to his captors, to his accusers, saying that if he is a prisoner of anyone, it's not them, it's of Christ. Because at a cosmic level, this is true. If we cast our minds back to chapter 1, Paul knows that all rule and all authority, 
all power, all dominion, they're all placed in subjection under Christ. So if he is a captor of anyone, it is Jesus. In other words, his earthly imprisonment, by comparison, means nothing to him. And this becomes his basis then for his encouragement to the Ephesians themselves not to be discouraged either. No, instead he wants them to be brought, and us as well here today, to be brought to maturity where all of these worries and anxieties as the world is changing, as the world is becoming more and more fierce to Christians, that all of these issues would be put in their proper place. And so to unpack this, we're going to have a quick look at the content of Paul's prayer here in verses 14 to 19. And we're going to see three things that Paul is praying for us in Jesus. So firstly, he reminds us of our unity in Christ. Uh, He reminds us of our unity in Christ in verse 14 uh, by saying that the whole family of God derives its name from the Father. Now, the NIV, which we had read and which some of you use, uh, it says, For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family derives its name. Right, A collection of individual families that are kind of gathering together. But this can be translated a different way, which I think uh, is more accurate to the, the kind of theme Paul is getting at here. He's saying that the whole family or the entire family of God derives its name. There's one family. We're all part of that one family. It's not a collection of other families coming together. And so the whole family derives its name from the Father before whom Paul kneels. It's a bit hard to see up there, isn't it? Uh, Regardless, though, the important thing is that we have a unity in Christ, and that is a very big theme of all of Ephesians. So that's the first point. Secondly, Paul prays in 16 to 17 that out of his glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, this is a big one. He's praying that while you're in the thick of many competing influences, like persecution and imprisonment in Paul's instance here, that your inner being be strengthened with power. Again, same words used in chapter 1 to talk about raising Christ from the dead, that we would be strengthened with power. Why? In order that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. It's kind of the core of what we do as Christians. In other words, he's praying that you would stand firm, that you would be matured in the faith, not letting worldly troubles knock you off your foundation in Christ Jesus. So firstly, he prays for their unity. Secondly, he prays that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. Thirdly, the last thing Paul prays is that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together, again, there's the, the unity stuff, power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Now, this is a very popular verse. Uh, Go to Kurong, you'll find plenty of fridge magnets and photo frames with this kind of verse in it. And so because of that, we want to be careful not to bring in our own thoughts as to what this might be. Uh, Some have overinterpreted this as the shape of the cross, you know, high, low, width, breadth, that kind of thing. Um, I don't think we want to overinterpret it in that sense. And if we do want to understand or put something to all of these adjectives, we want to look back in Ephesians and see what Paul is saying here. We're meant to see this 
this idea of how great God's love is in light of who we once were. That God's love is so great that it reached even you here today. And the biggest thing Paul wants is for us never, ever to take this for granted. I think the whole metaphor of wide, long, high, deep is, is basically a summary statement of all the themes Paul has written about in Ephesians. So here's, here's my take on it. Give or take what you think, right? I think he's saying God's love is wide enough to reach the whole world, both Jew and Gentile, everybody, every nation. It's long enough to stretch from eternity past, as God chose us from before the foundation of the world in 1 verse 4, to eternity ahead. It's high enough to raise us into the heavenly realms in which we are now seated in chapter 2 verse 6. And it's deep enough to rescue us from our total depravity, where we were dead in our transgressions and sins in 2.1. I think these words Paul is using here are basically a summary of everything he's covered so far. And what a great summary this really is. But the interesting thing is, like, like a good TV game show host, Paul, he gives this bombshell, but then he goes, but wait, there's more. Because Christ's love goes even beyond this. In fact, he says it surpasses human knowledge in verse 19. It's a remarkable thing to say. Now, Paul's not confused here. Uh, He's not creating some kind of paradox where it's like, we know God's love, but we don't really know God's love. Um, What do you make of that? He's not saying that we'll, we'll never understand God's love. It doesn't surpass knowledge in the sense that we just can't understand anything about it. Because if it did do that, then why would we speak about it? Right? If it's like speaking another language, in a sense, it would have zero meaning. It's, if it's impossible to understand, it's, it's kind of pointless even talking about it. But rather, what I think he is implying here, with his love that surpasses knowledge, he's implying that we will never, ever exhaust the riches of his love. Right? We will never get to the bottom of it, no matter how hard we try. In fact, we'll spend eternity in heaven exploring with awe and wonder at the riches of God's love for us in Jesus, and even that still won't be enough to fully grasp it. That's what Paul means here in verse 19. And once we get this, that that we're loved with a love that goes far beyond what our minds can even comprehend, once we know something of the thing that is ultimately not fully knowable, Paul says, once again, this will lead us to a maturity and an assurance in Christ. In fact, Paul calls this being filled to the measure of all the fullness of God in verse 19. So his prayer, as we looked at here in point one, Paul prays for unity. He prays that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith. And third, that as a result of contemplating his incomprehensible love, that we would be matured in Christ. And so verses 14 to 19, this section, it's Paul's prayer for his readers, it's his prayer for you and me here today, for our maturity, that we would be strengthened, that we would grow up in Christ and get this. But before Paul gets to this point, remember he went on this tangent. He said, for this reason, and then he kind of had a, a thought bubble and only returned to it in verse 14. So now we're going to look back, uh, and in point two, we're going to be looking at this tangent uh, that he has in point two, verses two to 13. So Paul prays for his readers' maturity, but first 
he explains the mystery now revealed. Now, I don't know about you, uh, if you're a mystery buff, uh, if you like riddles and problems, uh, where you find little clues and you kind of got to put them all together and solve it, Uh, if you're a fan of CSI and the 10,000 spin-offs they've had and you're kind of trying to figure out who the killer is and all that kind of stuff, if you're a big fan of these sorts of mysteries and piecing things together, then you're completely on the wrong track (laughs) with regards to what a mystery is here. That was an attempt at a bait and switch. I was hoping you'd all be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm really good at mystery. I can figure that. No. Paul is saying, no, this, this is not that kind of a mystery. When the scriptures talk about a mystery, they're not talking about something that you can piece together and then figure out. Rather, the meaning is something that was hidden, right? It was away from sight. It was covered up, away from our understanding, There's no solving these particular mysteries, even with the various clues that we might find in other parts of Scripture, and we will address those in a moment. Now, a solved mystery in the Bible, and solved really should be in inverted commas here, a solved mystery is basically something that was previously hidden, but has now been revealed. Right, The curtain has been pulled away, and we can finally see it. This is what we need to have in mind when we think about the mystery of Christ, as Paul puts it uh, in this section. It's something that was previously hidden, but is now revealed to us. So with this in mind, uh, starting at verse 2, Paul says this. He says, Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. And I think this thing is already written briefly was chapter 2 verses 11 to 22 last week's sermon in reading this then you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of christ which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the spirit to god's holy apostles and prophets this mystery is that through the gospel the gentiles are heirs together with israel members together of one body and share us together in the promise of Christ. Paul says that the magnitude of God's plan, right, to include even the Gentiles, the nations, basically the whole world, into his plans, this was previously hidden. But now it has been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets that through the gospel, the good news, Gentiles are heirs together with Israel and share us together in the promise in Christ Jesus. That's the mystery revealed in verse 6. Now, if you were here last week, you heard all about this. Um, And even today as Christians, this might not seem too mind-blowing, right? We're we're kind of like, yeah, of course, we trust in Christ, we're all in. We've had 2,000 years of time to reflect on this reality, We've had 2,000 years of uh, church in existence and creeds being made and other documents kind of summing up this reality that the offer of salvation is open to the whole world. And so it doesn't really feel too impactful for us. But I want us to consider Paul's context, right, where this news is hot off the press, where there is a fresh hope that arrived for a people previously destined for hell And that people was anyone that wasn't Jewish. Consider Paul's context 
where the Jews knew that they were God's chosen people. And now suddenly the magnitude of God's love has blown wide open the offer of salvation and it becomes open to all people by grace. Simply by believing, not through following a bunch of rituals and customs, but simply through faith in Jesus. Now the thing that that wasn't a mystery in this day and age is when this news began to spread, began to explode, the Jews in Paul's day were pretty upset by this news. They hated it. They were part of this exclusive club where God was so close to them and all of a sudden, bang, it's open to everybody. And they didn't want Paul to spread this news. In fact, we know one of their reasons for arresting Paul in Acts 21, uh, if you read some of the background behind uh, today's book, is that they thought he brought an Ephesian man into the temple, breaking some of their laws. Right? Potentially, he was one of the recipients of this letter, for all intents and purposes, a man called Trophimus. And they accused Paul of bringing him in, a Gentile, kind of a dirty, rotten outsider, into the Jewish temple simply because Trophimus and Paul, they were seen in the city of Jerusalem together. I'm not sure whether they actually saw him in the temple, and I'm pretty convinced they didn't, because I don't think it happened. But the Jews hated the idea, right, that there would be this fresh reconciliation, that all of a sudden the rotten outsider was suddenly loved, a member of God's household they were in. But even more scandalous is that they hated this idea that non-Jews and Jews could get together, but that they could also together, by God's grace, worship the same God. That all of a sudden this God that was exclusively for the Jews actually was a God for the nations as well. And Paul was a pretty key player, as we read in today's chapter, in spreading this good news, in explaining this mystery that has now been blown open. This mystery of Gentile inclusion, of the nation's inclusion. And it was so foreign and scandalous... Uh, the Jews had to say this about him. They said in Acts 21 that Paul was teaching everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. They weren't very happy with Paul. They weren't very happy with this news that the love of God was so massive. They're not too pleased with the gospel of grace, which brings in the outsider. This plan that God had, according to verses 9 to 11, from eternity past. They weren't privy to the sheer scale and magnitude of God's master plan, and this upset them. However, even more mind-blowing than this, uh, and I find this a little mind-blowing myself, even more amazing than this, is, is that the new gathering, right? this new church, made up of Jew and Gentile, and all numbers of different people, this new church is the instrument which God now uses to make known this master plan, what what Paul calls this manifold wisdom of God, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Just stop for a minute and consider this. That the church, right, this, the gathering of us here today, this is how God makes known his manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Now, we don't know if Paul here is if he's talking about angels or demons. He's kind of mentioned both in that sphere of, of spiritual uh, realms. Um, we don't know if he's talking about any other number of heavenly beings. But regardless, there is an incredible sense in which Paul is implying that even these heavenly beings, 
right, who spent their time kind of in close proximity to God weren't privy to God's amazing plan of salvation in all its fullness. But now they see it, get this, through the church, through the gathering of God's people, through you and me here today. There's a sense in which we are being watched and the manifold wisdom of God is being revealed simply through us gathering. And the heavenly beings are watching, going, wow, God is amazing. And I think it's pretty mind-blowing that the church is, is the instrument through which the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms see the manifold wisdom of God. And this has really far-reaching implications for us because if you're ever thinking that church can be pretty drab, if you're ever thinking it can be pretty ordinary, that is not important, or if you've been online all this time and you really could have returned, or that church is not worth prioritising in your week, that whenever something, a slight challenging competing influence comes in, you just kind of knock it off a bit, then it might be worth meditating on this remarkable fact in verse 10, that God chose his church, his gathering, to show the powers and authorities in the heavenly realms his manifold wisdom. And we're still here today, 2,000 years later, doing this. We're still kicking and we will continue to exist as a bunch of outsiders now brought in as a testament to God's amazing wisdom and love all the way until Christ returns. Now, some of you who, who love your Old Testament, right, you love your biblical theology, you'll remind me that uh, this wasn't exactly a mystery because we do have glimpses in the Old Testament of uh, outside inclusion coming in. Uh, you'll remind me that God promises to Abraham, for example, in Genesis 12, that he will be a blessing to all the nations. Uh, you see King Solomon being a blessing to all the nations as the Queen of Sheba comes in and receives wisdom from him. You'll see many other occasions of outsiders, non-Jews, committing themselves to the Jewish God, kind of becoming these, these second-class Israelites to follow the God of Israel. But Paul's point here in Ephesians 3 is that none of this, none of this inclusion, nothing could have actually prepared anybody to grasp the sheer size and scope and magnitude of God's plans as he blew open the floodgates offering salvation to all nations. It's not just they're kind of tacking on and coming in. It's actually, no, God's plan reaches out to the whole world. And this offer of salvation to all the nations is simply through faith in the person and work of Jesus. And so now in Jesus, through faith, we may approach God, Paul says in verse 12, with freedom and confidence, which is something not even the Jews could do. Do you remember at, at Jesus' crucifixion, one of the kind of most famous signs uh, when he was crucified was the curtain that covered the Holy of Holies. Uh, it symbolized this necessary separation uh, between us and God, right? Where our sinfulness couldn't actually allow us to approach God and his holiness. And when Christ was crucified, it was torn top to bottom right down the middle. And I think perhaps this is what Paul has in mind when he wrote, through faith in Jesus, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Right? We can go straight to the place where God dwells with freedom and confidence. 
In other words, God's plan was so humongous that all the nations through faith in Jesus can now boldly approach the untamable, holy God as their heavenly father, knowing with full assurance that they will be accepted. So with all this, are we beginning to grasp just how huge all of today's passage is? This isn't something to be handled lightly. There is some amazing stuff going on, and we must never take this for granted. Uh, all of this, everything we've heard, all of this forms Paul's case to the Ephesians, he's writing to, not to be discouraged by his imprisonment or by his sufferings. Because all worldly sufferings, on account of being a follower of Jesus, are nothing when compared to the amazingly rich love of God revealed to us in Christ. This mystery now blown open. And so in all of this excitement, uh, as Paul wrestles with some really heavy themes that have some really practical implications for us here, in all of this excitement, Paul lays out uh, the immeasurable riches of God's love for us in Jesus. All of this leads him to praise God again. And this forms our third and final point in your outlines. Now, if any of you get to know me uh, on any kind of deeper level, uh, you'd know that I'm not hugely emotional. Um, I do feel highs and lows, but they're often kind of congested somewhere in the middle. Um, Perhaps I don't feel them as much as I really should and need to ask for God help with that. Um, But there are rare moments where I do get pretty excited Uh, moments where I get overjoyed and and you can tell the signs of this because I'll start talking a lot more or I'll talk quicker. Uh, Perhaps I'll be a bit fidgety. My knee will bounce and I'll be kind of unable to sit still in my seat. And if I'm really excited, occasionally I'll go out for runs and I'll just be able to run non-stop. Don't get exhausted. These are the signs that, that I'm on cloud nine, that I am just super pumped Well, here at the end of Ephesians 3, Paul, he can't help himself. He bursts into praise to God after all of this stuff. And this stuff really should excite us. This is the stuff that should get us just jumping out of our seats right now, kind of clapping and praising all that kind of stuff that we're not used to as Presbyterians. We've seen Paul pray for his readers' maturity. Uh, We've seen him pray that they would know the love that surpasses knowledge that we'll be searching for for an eternity. We've seen why this is the case in verses 1 to 13, namely that God's love and manifold wisdom making the church what it is today, that it reaches beyond uh, even the comprehension of beings in heaven. And this enables us to approach God with freedom and confidence as our heavenly father. And all of this amazing news leads Paul to spontaneously praise uh, God here in verses 20 and 21. And the technical term for this praise is, Uh, is a doxology, right? It's this short expression of praise to God, an outpouring of praise. Uh, Occasionally, churches uh, do this as they finish up the service, uh, a burst of praise to God, usually direct from the Scriptures. And this is what we have here in verses 20 and 21. So Paul concludes uh, today's chapter, these amazing themes, with these words. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine... According to his power that is at work within us, to him be, the, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, at first, this might feel a little bit over the top. 
we might feel that Paul is perhaps asking a little bit too much here. Uh, would, would we struggle to pray this? I guess is another way to put it. Would we struggle to pray this prayer with Paul? Right, especially the bits about doing immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Because I can imagine quite a lot. More than this is I think churches have taken this down the wrong route. They've, they've used uh, something like this to promote prosperity and, and health and wealth. I mean, we can ask God anything we imagine, anything we want, and seemingly he'll grant that to us. Is that what this is saying? You see, I don't think this is what Paul has in mind here, and the obvious proof of this is that Paul himself is suffering. He's in prison when he says this. Right? He's not saying, I'm just going to miraculously climb out of prison um, because I can ask God whatever I want and it'll just happen. He knows he's in there. He knows he's suffering. So the question is, what is he actually saying here? What does this mean? Well, firstly, there is a very real sense in which it is impossible for this prayer to be over the top. And that's because of the nature of the entire chapter. Right, when we consider God's love, right, it is so big that it surpasses knowledge. That our access to God the Father is so free, we can ask him anything. In fact, in verse 12, this idea of approaching God with freedom and confidence, uh, the word freedom there, um, or boldness as some of your translations might say, uh, it's literally the idea of freedom of speech. Right? It's a use of speech that conceals nothing to our Father. And so Paul takes up this offer, this offer of freedom of speech to, the, to God the Father, and he affirms the greatness of God's character who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. We don't have to conceal anything as we speak to our Heavenly Father. But what exactly does Paul ask God for here, uh, for us here in Ephesians 3? What is he asking of God the Father in this? Well, he prays that one would be strengthened out of the glorious riches uh, of God's grace. That's what we covered in the first point. That Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith. And these are amazing things. In fact, this is really where the buck stops as Christians, that we would be strengthened and matured in the riches of God's love, that we would follow him by faith for the rest of our days. What an amazing prayer. That we'd be strengthened to follow Jesus and know God's love, which then enables us to keep our eyes on the prize, to keep the end goal in sight. And in so doing not to be discouraged by the worldly temptations or sufferings that come our way. Paul uses his own example of imprisonment here for the sake of the gospel, and uh, he ends up, despite this fact, in this spontaneous burst of praise in verses 21 and 22. His imprisonment really means nothing to him. In other words, Christian maturity, it involves seeing the power and love of God as having such immense value that worldly issues appear basically like a dish of fish fingers alongside the incredible riches of the feast we'll have with God. That worldly issues, in other words, pale by comparison with the love of God in Christ. And so as we finish up, I think I just want to ask this question. How are you doing at growing in maturity in Christ? Are we praying that we would grasp something of the unknowable riches of God's love 
Are we praying for one another that we would be faithful and diligent in following him, that we would be strengthened to follow him despite the worries and temptations of the world? In what ways are the truth of the gospel helping you to keep all worldly discouragement and doubts into this perspective? So how about as we finish up, I'll pray that this would be the case and that God would strengthen us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, please strengthen us. Please mature us with all of your power so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. Help us by the power of your Spirit to grasp the incredible riches that we have access to in Christ. And may this help us to treasure your gospel beyond anything the world can offer or tempt us with. Lord, to you be all glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.